The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. One of the things that I love about being host of a podcast like EDU Futures is the opportunity I have to connect with amazing, brilliant people. Some of these people I have prior relationships with. Others, my interview with them is the first time that we've ever spoken. My guest today is a person who has been influencing my thinking for years, for decades. Howard Rheingold is an American critic, writer, teacher, known for his specialties on cultural, social, political implications of technology, especially communication-based technology, the internet, virtual communities. More recently, he's done work around participatory pedagogy and a literacy of cooperation. Howard is a fascinating person. Drawing from his website, I love the way he introduces himself. It's called Howard Rheingold's Story, and it says, I fell into the computer realm from the typewriter dimension in 1981, then plugged my computer into my telephone in 1983 and got sucked into the net. He goes on to describe some of his work. Howard is a prolific writer, author of, I've read at least 15 books by him. So a number, one of the first books I ever came across was a book called Talking Tech. I think he had a book prior to that, perhaps. But the one I came across first was Talking Tech, a conversational guide to science and technology. He also wrote another book in 1985 called Tools for Thought, The History of Mind-Expanding Technology, which introduced me to the notion of mind augmentation or mind amplification by technologies. He was author of a book in 1991 called Virtual Reality. He extended that to the notion of virtual community with another book in 1993, many other books, but we'll jump forward into the 2000s, a fascinating book called Smart Mobs, sort of the power of the collective for good or ill in digital contexts amplified by technology. In 2012, he switched directions a little bit and offered a perspective on all of this, this knowledge and this insight that he'd gathered. He wrote a book called NetSmart. How to Thrive Online. And this was a book that guided people, offered them five uh, critical competencies or skill sets and how those can help one thrive in this digital context. Howard is a deep thinker. He's one who looks under the surface. He gets to the roots of things. For me, when I talk about the word radical, that's what I mean. When I call someone a radical or I call for radical thinking, what I'm talking about is one who isn't just satisfied looking at the surface and looking on the outside, but one who's willing to dig deep, dig into the roots to see what's there. And Howard is one of those people. I think you'll get a bit of that in my conversation with him today. Now, as we go in, I just want to note if you're interested in what you hear I'll provide a number of links in the show notes to learn more about his work. And I definitely encourage you to think about supporting Howard Rheingold in his work also. He does have a Patreon account I encourage you to check out. It's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Howard Rheingold. I'll have that in the show notes as well. Without further ado, here's my interview with Howard. Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you. 
I think that I first, I know, not think, I know, I, I first came across you in, uh, in your books. I sort of cut my teeth in, um, as an academic studying media ecology. And I originally came across this book from 1985 called Tools for Thought, The History of Mind-Expanding Technology, which was really a fascinating book. And, um, and it was uh, formative for me in my own thinking. And I think that was my first introduction to you and your work. Well, it, you know, it's interesting. Uh, for, for reasons I won't get into, that, that book sank like a stone. Uh, <laughs> uh, commercially, uh, it, it wasn't my fault. It was the publisher's fault. But um, all these years later, I'd say uh, it's probably the most influential book on, on people who are in technology and education because they, they tell me so. Uh, I wrote it because everyone was excited about Steve Jobs and, and uh, Bill Gates, but uh, really there was a, a bigger story, historical story, a, a larger framework within which personal computers emerged. So I, I went and talked to people like Bob Taylor, Doug Engelbart, Alan Kay, um, who, who may not be as widely known, but were very important. And it was an interesting story in the sense that people built on each other's work because they wanted a tool to expand their ability to think and communicate. Yeah. And for me, uh, having studied media ecology, I was thinking of it uh, sort of pre-computer technologies, of course, in terms of things like the microscope and the telescope and uh, ways in which technologies expand different human senses and then sort of extend into sort of um, the um, uh, our cognitive capabilities. And then I came across your book and it just took me in a, this really wonderful direction of thinking about computers uh, as a form of mind augmentation. Well, yes. Um, in, in fact, I've been following the idea of mind amplifiers ever since then. I got interested in personal computers because I heard you could, you could write with them. Literally, I was working with a, a typewriter and I would have uh, enjoyed the ability to copy and cut and paste without literally cutting up pieces of paper. But when I followed the, the story and found out about particularly Doug Engelbart, I realized that, that these were not just better typewriters, that, that these were ways to en enhance our ability to think. The way uh, the alphabet is probably better than a microscope would be the alphabet enables us to think and communicate in ways that we weren't able to before. Yeah, I think at the time, too, I'm wondering, as you, you mentioned, that, that this one didn't necessarily sell as well as one might have hoped, but that it had a lot of influence within for people in the tech industry. I know for me, part of what it did was um, it gave it gave a lens for thinking about this this topic in a really deep, meaningful way. It sort of resonated with that that human yearning for meaning and purpose, and it, it allowed to frame this it, this development of, of computers uh, in that larger perspective around sort of the search for meaning and and uh, sort of a sense of why we're here and uh, what we want to accomplish. Really powerful. So I'm wondering, uh, with that book, having started, you've obviously written about themes that are related since that time, but from maybe 1985 moving forward, I'm curious, how have your thoughts sort of evolved? What's changed and what's stayed the same um, as you've been thinking about this notion of mind amplifiers? 
Well, uh, you know, I think you have to, to frame this in that I've been a, a professional writer, freelance writer my entire life. So finding the personal computer and then the online networks was pretty miraculous in terms of tools. Uh, I often think that uh, I started out my career uh, with a, a telephone, a manual typewriter, and, and a library card. Those were my tools. And now I've got the World Wide Web and a supercomputer in my pocket. And it's like starting out with a horse and buggy and ending up having your own uh, spaceship. So personally, as someone who thinks and writes for a living, it's been amazingly empowering to me. But when I first started writing about it, I started thinking about, well, where might this lead? And, and you always have to think, what might go wrong? What's the, the shadow side? I think it's, it's pretty clear to people now in a way it really wasn't when I was first writing that the advantages of technological innovations are obvious at first, particularly since they're advertised to be so. But the, the, the costs and the pitfalls only become evident later. So I, I was very excited to connect with other people through a modem. When I, when I wrote Tools for Thought, I, I got this device that connected my computer to my telephone and enabled me to participate in these pre-internet computer networks. Uh, and I happened upon the well, which was started by the, the people who created the whole earth catalog and connected to this whole community of people that I had not known otherwise. And I think one of the exciting things about that, and I wrote about that in my 1987 article in Whole Earth Review on virtual communities, that this was a way that people could learn together, peer learning. The, the, the term really didn't exist back then, but on the well, people got to know what each other were interested in. And if, if I came across some information that I knew would be of interest to someone else, it didn't cost me anything but a few seconds to pass that information along. And it turns out that it, you know, if I if I do that for people, they do that for me. And in, in my experience, everything that I give away, all, all the things that I've discovered and known that that I have provided to others online, comes comes back to me tenfold. So I was quite enthusiastic about what I was calling virtual communities. That was my next book, 1990. It was not my next book. My next book was called Virtual Reality in 1991, but 1993. I wrote about the future of what we now call social media in uh, the virtual community. And the last chapter was entitled Disinformocracy, in which I started thinking about what, what might be wrong, what might go wrong. And not really knowing a lot about it, my just thinking logically, it occurred to me that probably the most important critical uncertainty would be whether when personal computers and networks become very widespread, would we as individuals, as citizens, would, would we have more freedom or less freedom? Would our, our governments be more democratic or less democratic? And that led me to the literature about what's called the public sphere. I didn't really know about it before then. Jürgen Habermas is a German political philosopher who writes somewhat unreadable tomes about this, but the idea is pretty simple. It's that uh, democracy is not just about electing your leaders. It's about a population that's free enough to talk and has good enough information that they 
can have conversations. They can they can cause they, they they can create public opinion about issues that concern them, and in turn, that public opinion would influence leaders and would influence policy. And you know, a couple of examples of this are the women's rights uh, movement and the civil rights movement. And of course, there was much more involved in terms of, of demonstrations and legislation and, and legal activity, but it was really the change in public opinion that enabled these, these social changes. So um, Habermas worried about two things. He worried that the at, at the time he wrote, the fairly young science of public relations would enable people with enough money to, to warp what people believed, uh, whether or not they knew that their opinions were being warped. And his other fear was that that journalism would, would no longer be a, a fair broker of information, that, that commercialization and consolidation of ownership would cause uh, newspapers and, and other news media to not really reflect reality. And so here we find ourselves in the, in the land of disinfotainment and um, computational propaganda. So those are some of the things that I looked at that might not be so good that seem to be happening. And, and I have to say that uh, this is true of a lot of, uh, if not all powerful technologies, which is that uh, if you can amplify the ability of humans and amplify the ability of groups, then people are gonna do fantastically beneficial things. You're, you're gonna get Wikipedia, you're gonna get very, rapid global response to epidemics. You're gonna get a lot of good things. You're also gonna get trolls. You're, you're also going to get misinformation. You're going to get flat earthers for the same reason. Let's say you have a disease and only one in a million people have it. Well, there are 2000 others uh, on the internet. You can connect with people with whom you have something in common, even though they may be on the other side of the world and you didn't know them before. You know, that's also true of people who believe the earth is flat, um, anti-vaxxers. So we're seeing an amplification of human capabilities to do good things and to do bad things, just as was true with the printing press. I just had a conversation. It was a virtual conversation with some with a colleague about this topic. And it was coming back to, to the same theme that, that technologies are values laden and there are always unpredictable uh, uses of them that the intended use is is absolutely certainly will not be the only use <laughs> of a technology unless it's completely authoritarian and controlled uh, strictly by <laughs> by someone and even in that case people find ways to hack it uh, so this idea of affordances and limitations are always present there uh, there's going to be an amplification of the good the bad and the ugly um, all in one I'm wondering if is that part of what led you to uh, kind of go to this next level in your writing in like 2012 when you put together NetSmart. Um, and I think uh, that was also um, even mind amplifier, the idea of how digital tools can make us smarter. I mean, is that kind of where you were going with sort of reflecting upon this Faustian bargain of, of these developments and trying to find a guide that could maybe curb people in a positive direction? Well, I have been reflecting on this uh, Faustian bargain uh, for a long time, mm -hmm. but every time I, I, I publish a book about you know, tools for thought, was about the future of personal computers. Um, the the virtual community was about the future of what's now called social media. I wrote a book called Smart Mobs uh, that was published in two thousand and two. That's about mm -hmm. 
the future what are now called smartphones. At every step, I asked in the process of writing, and and was was confronted with by reviewers and 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 scholars. Uh, the question is: Is this good for us? Are digital computers and and networks and and smartphones providing more more benefits than than they they are liabilities? Um, and my conclusion was it, that it's a matter of literacy, that it it's it's a matter of how many people have a clue, because you know the internet doesn't come with a a, a user manual, and there are ways to use it that are useful and ways to use it that are are dangerous. So this knowledge is not secret. You know a lot of it. I know a lot of it, but it's nothing that has has really been part of the education system. So I thought, what are the essential social media literacies? And if an individual was adept at these skills, that individual would do better. But also, even more importantly, the more individuals who had these clues, the, the healthier the online commons would be. So I came up with five essential social media literacies, starting with attention, crap detection, participation, collaboration, and network awareness. I was also teaching college students, and it was clear that they were increasingly immersed in social media and that it was changing the way they live. I was, I was teaching at Stanford when... Uh, Facebook first became available uh, to Stanford students, and that did change the way people did things very, very rapidly. So attention is really the fundamental one because uh, it's, it's the foundation of, of thought and communication. When, when I was writing this 10 years ago, uh, it, was, it was clear that, that people, including myself, were, were sucked into our computer screens. Um, now, of course, uh, it's pretty clear that most people in the world are, are sucked into their smartphone screens. I, I, I would challenge you to do this test. If, if you're in any city in the world and you're, you're standing at a crosswalk waiting for the light to change with, with other pedestrians, I, I guarantee that at least one of them, and often all of them, are going to be looking at their phones. So the good news about attention is that it is manageable. You, you can reclaim your attention. Um, the next social media literacy, crap detection, I think is so important. Right, That's my now. favorite, by the way. I really like that part of the book. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I'm concerned about that. Uh, it, it, it occurred to me back then that, that uh, if you taught people how to, to search critically and to think critically and to fact check the information they found online, then that, that might be a buffer against some of this bad information that we're seeing, you know, bad political information can cost you your, your liberty and, and bad medical information can cost you your life. And there's a, a lot of both online. Uh, there are a lot of ways that you can, you can think critically about information online and teach it. And I'll have to say that since then, um, particularly in higher education, there's more and more attention being paid to this. But in order to, to stem the, the flow of uh, flow is not the right word, the tsunami of, of bad information, we needed some years ago to have elementary school students being taught the, the fundamentals of search and, and critical uh, information consumption. 
our educational institutions move much more slowly than the social changes that are coming out of the, the emergence of these new technologies. Now, um, it's not just people putting bad information online. It's computational propaganda using the, the micro-targeting that, that Facebook provides to, to change people's political opinions. We're seeing armies of, of human trolls that are linked to networks of, of uh, artificial bots. Uh, this is an arms race. And the, if we can teach critical thinking part of the arms race, is losing badly to the let's use these tools to influence people to buy things and to, and to buy political opinions. Yeah, so I, um, having kind of grown up in this field in my, in my professional life, when my children were born, unfortunately, they became sort of experiments. <laughs> um, I just remember, for example, my daughter, uh, when she was when she was quite young, and she was just speaking at that point, and and we didn't we didn't have television in the house a lot, but uh, it was there, and she was watching something. It must have been some cartoon or something like that, and a commercial came on, and it was a commercial for a Barbie, and um, and she looked over to me and she said, "Dad, I know they're trying to trick me to buy this, but it's okay to be tricked sometimes, isn't it?" <laughs> and it was actually a, a real celebration moment for me. I felt like a, a victory of a, at least there was an examine nature to this. She was she was thinking about it. But the reason I bring it up is I, I think about that that phrase from my daughter when she was young. It's okay to be tricked sometimes, isn't it? And and I wonder if there's not even. It, it's almost like the idea of the impact of cigarettes upon someone's health and how. 15, 20 years ago, you'd drive by almost any hospital and see a bunch of healthcare workers smoking cigarettes right outside. So it was clear that the knowledge didn't necessarily transfer to the behavior. Um, and then you amplify that by the fact that some of these strategies now are sort of neuromarketing strategies that seem to bypass the conscious mind. How do we prepare people for life in that type of a context? Well, I, again, I think it starts with, with the attention training that... Uh, this is not going to go all the way, uh, and it may not go all that far, but the difference between um, an unexamined online attention and one in which at least once in a while you stop and think, well, what am I doing and, and, and what are they trying to sell me, is, is very significant. So I think this is a, a little bit optimistic, if not Pollyanna-ish, but I, I, I emphasize that Although we have quite a ways to go for an effective education for people, there's a huge step by just enabling them to become aware that they are being manipulated. Hmm. Uh, we could talk about this one for, uh, for a long time as well. I'd like to sort of switch directions just for a moment too. Uh, I came across your work initially through Tools for Thought, and then I've read, I think I've read pretty much everything you've published over the years, some things more than once. But my first interaction with you personally was you had created uh, Rheingold U. And I actually use Rheingold U as an example in some of my presentations about what I call uh, outsider education, sort of a play on outsider art. 
um, of, of these sort of new forms of really rich, meaningful education that are as valuable and, and meaningful as a credit-based uh, college experience, but it's happening outside of the parameters of sort of regulated, uh, regulated higher education. Um, but at that point, uh, I'm curious about your, your venture into this next piece, how your work around the literacy of cooperation and participatory pedagogy, for example, how does that fit into this sort of larger strand of your work and your thinking? Well, I, I taught for 10 years. I taught at, at Berkeley and I, I taught at Stanford and I don't have a PhD, but they uh, allowed me to teach students because of uh, my book, The Virtual community and because uh, nobody else was really teaching at that time ab about uh, virtual communities and, and social media. And I did not have any training as a teacher, although I was very confident in my knowledge of the subject matter. I was not so confident about knowing how to teach. And I, I think the most important thing that happened to me was when I confronted that fear, that fear of allowing the students to know that I was learning too. So when I opened up and said that, that I was learning how to teach and that I was going to try a bunch of things and I would appreciate it if they, they told me before my evaluations what was working, what wasn't working, um, it took me a little while to convince them I was sincere. But then my students helped me uh, reframe my teaching. And because I was teaching about social media, it only made sense to use social media. So we had forums and, and blogs and wikis, uh, along with our classroom conversation. And along with the, the students, came up with the idea that they would help me teach. So we had co-teaching teams of, of two and three students who would meet with me and come up with a plan, and they would be responsible for about a third of our class time. And they would have some other responsibilities as well. And, you know, it does make a huge difference uh, if you're the person standing up trying to, to maintain the attention of the, the people who are sitting down looking at you. And by spreading that around, that had a tremendous effect. But I also realized that we were learning together and I started calling it co-learning and they really took to that. So over the years, I, I think, again, the hardest thing was for me to, to let go of my fear that if I let them know that I didn't know everything, that that, that would be a problem. It turned out it wasn't. Uh, a problem, and it turns out that if if I let go of some of my power over them, and in exchange asked for them to take more responsibility for their their learning, it we we got closer and closer to being a co-learning community. And I think if I had known in the tenth year, uh, in in the in the first year, what I had learned by the tenth year. I would have trusted my students a whole lot more from the, the very beginning. The last course I taught at Stanford, after the, the second or third session, I, I wrote on the, on the whiteboard all of the activities I was expecting of the students, posting in forums, writing blogs, uh, commenting on blogs, editing the wiki, etc. And I said, I want you to figure out what you would rather do and and, and modify this. So here's my phone number, wrote it on the board. I said, I'm gonna walk around campus. Uh, you decide. Uh, if you have any questions, text me. And when you're ready for me to come back, um, text me again. And so I came back and they had changed, uh, changed it all to, to their liking and, and we proceeded. And, and I think that their learning went uh, 
better then. So I guess if I had to, to, to boil it all down, that my experience was that students have been trained to, in, in what's called learn to helplessness. They're expecting to be delivered an education, but like all humans, they are avid learners. And if you can kind of unlock their enthusiasm about that, uh, the learning gets, gets really uh, exciting. That's when I decided, uh, why don't I teach a, a course online and I can do it my way? You know, there are certain constraints when you teach in an educational institution. You have to grade for one thing, which I hate, and that's a, a whole other conversation. I'm with you. <laughs> so, um, you know, what we're talking about, kind of a step, step, zoom back a little bit. We're talking about the intersection of two really large uh, events. Uh, one is that uh, schools no longer have the monopoly on learning that they used to have. If you were to ask a 14-year-old, how do you learn to play the ukulele or configure a web server um, or edit a video, they'd probably say, well, I'll go to YouTube and search and I'll find another 14-year-old who will teach me how to do that. Unless you were one of the rare uh, autodidacts, uh, until recently, if you want to learn, you had to go to school. But now um, you've got the World Wide Web, you've got search engines, you've, you've got audio and, and video, you've got Wikipedia. Um, what, if, what if people could learn together uh, without school? And so that led to the next step. Uh, so I, I taught these courses, you took part in one of the courses, and you know what was interesting about that was that the same thing happened that happened in the classroom, which was that I could say to the students, I could frame it by saying, um, I cannot guarantee that the magic will happen, but I can tell you that it has happened. And that at a certain point, we become a co-learning community. And often, but not always, it did. And, and I, I don't have all of the factors that would, would make for a formula for success there. And, and, and the same thing happened online. You know, sometimes, no matter how hard I pushed it, I, I couldn't get people to be excited about teaching each other, learning with each other. And sometimes it just took off like, like wildfire. Um, so uh, I was invited to do a, uh, a lecture at, uh, at Berkeley in 2011. And I, I, I talked about this history in greater detail. And then I said, let's, let's take it to the next step. What if we could eliminate the teacher entirely? What if a group of people wants to learn a subject? using all of the tools and, and information that's available online, how would they go about doing it? How would they find and qualify and organize resources? What kind of learning activities? What kind of media would they use? How would they evaluate it? So I propose that we, we start creating a handbook for peer learning. I, I call it Peeragogy at, at that time. And, and part of the deal with this invited lecture was that I, I meet with some of the faculty and graduate students in person a couple of times, which I did. And during those meetings, I put my laptop on the table and I, I opened it to, a, to an audio video uh, chat service. And I, via Facebook and Twitter, I invited others to participate. And the interesting thing about that is that it, it did spawn this project to, to create a, um, a Piragogy handbook. In fact, if you go to piragogy.org, P-E-E-R-A-G-O-G-Y.org, um, you'll, you'll see it's, it's still alive and it's still being uh, edited and, and updated. After a month or so, all of the, the faculty and graduate students uh, that had joined this project uh, from Berkeley had dropped out. But 
people I didn't know, educators uh, from all over the world, uh, Mexico and Brazil and the UK and, and Japan, uh, created this online community. We're, we're sort of a, a case history of pedagogy. We, we figured out what the resources were and how to qualify them and what media to use. And after about a year and a half, I dropped out of it and it became a sustaining community. And anybody who's interested can can join it. They have, have online meetings every week. So I, um, you might remember at some point there was a, a lot of hype about the MOOC, the massive open online course. Um, I was when I started teaching at Stanford, I, I, I asked around about why are not many teachers using social media? And the answer I was given was, well, that's easy. This is a knowledge factory and you're hired because of your publications in your field. And if you're supposed to teach classes and you never show up, that would be a problem. But there are no positive incentives for innovating in, in, in pedagogy. Um, this is just background to, you know, years later, Sebastian Thrun, who had been a professor at Stanford, said, I, I, I'm going to quit teaching at Stanford because I've got 100,000 students on my MOOC, and this is going to replace the university, and raised uh, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and there was, this, there was a, a furor for a time about, are, are MOOCs going to uh, replace universities? And then, of course, it turned out, yes, he had 100,000 people registered and only about 40,000 showed up and only about 10,000 graduated. That don't, don't take those numbers for real, but they're in the ballpark there. And, and MOOCs can be very useful for learning things for which there are definite answers, for learning programming or, or, or mathematics, for example. But things that you need to discuss are, are harder. So, uh, you know, I think the, the, the MOOC has a future, but I don't know about the massive part. I think you still need to have a, a, a cohort that's small enough for people to recognize who each other are, who have expertly guided the discussions. Now, that expert who guides it may be a teacher in that field, or it may be one of the, 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 the peers. So I think... Um, We've got the, the, all these tools. We have this, this break, breakup of the monopoly on learning. I can't really venture to guess how that's going to change educational institutions, but I think that this delta between education and learning has become very, very important because humans are learners, and not all education systems really honor that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I uh, love the distinction between learning and education here. And certainly the way in which you facilitated the online course, it was it was not a large course. I mean, it was less than 20 people, I believe, when I was in it. Uh, so it was qualitatively different than most of the MOOCs that we see today. And I know some people distinguish between the more uh, constructivist or connectivist MOOCs that are more collaborative and sort of... Uh, peer-driven, and those that are more sort of instructor-led and instructor-driven. As you think about this, as you've engaged in some of these, these experiments, and we're kind of coming to the end of our, our time for this interview, where do you see this going? Are there a couple of, of areas that you're particularly interested in following, or, or uh, are there any predictions that you're willing to put out there, or maybe some just questions that you're wondering about the future and where this is going? Well, so uh, I talked about the 
every 14 year old knows how to learn how to do various things by going to YouTube. Um, I'm interested in what's going to happen as that cohort worldwide of young people who are accustomed to learning what they want to learn, not necessarily learning it in school. What, what are they going to do when they have kids and, and, and they need to think about educational institutions? Are, are, how is that going to change the, the nature of education? Um, my other thought, I, I recently wrote about this, about um, democracy is, learning the, is losing the online arms race. Uh, to, to go back to our earlier um, discussion, I don't think that, that uh, literacy training is going to be enough. I think there has to be regulatory restraint on these um, social media monopolies um, and the way that they use the information that they collect about us to covertly change the way we think about things. Yeah, that's interesting. That's that's provocative enough that we could have another hour or two. But it's I think we can finish on that provocative statement. And Howard, I'm so grateful for you and for the work that you're doing. Your writing has had a, an influence on me and uh, your work has in, in many ways. So uh, thank you for that. Thanks for all that you do and that you have done. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.